Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode four of part two of the ongoing podcast series on Socrates entitled The Alpha Human. If you haven't played catch up yet, be my guest and start back in part one to catch up on the history of Socrates. Episode four, we're going to dive into morality. So welcome. I'm glad you joined me as we enter the fray. It's been a long day. You just arrived home from work and your family is in various locations throughout the house. As you walk through your front door, you can hear and smell someone preparing dinner in the kitchen. The sound of laughter and the thumping of feet inform you that your children are upstairs. It has been raining all day and you begin the process of removing your soaked clothing. After removing enough of your outer layers, you are able to stoop down and untie your boots without water running down your back. Soon you have kicked off the heavy boots and with some effort have risen back to fully standing. Whatever is cooking in that kitchen... Your thought is interrupted by a forceful knocking on your front door. The sound startles you. It takes a second for you to regain your bearings and reach to open the door. Who could be out in this weather, you think as you open the door? You find a stranger standing there in front of you. At first you thought it could be your neighbor, but this person is much too big. In fact, he is probably one of the biggest people you have ever encountered in person. He fills the doorway. Despite his noteworthy size, it is not his bulk that has gotten your attention. The porch light is reflecting off the shiny surface of an axe that the man is holding in his left hand. You note that the reflecting light is only coming from a portion of the axe's blade, as most of it is caked with blood and gore. The man asks you a question. Are your children home? And so we begin a little choose-your-own-adventure. What do you do? For most parents, the gut feeling in this instance is one of revulsion and determination to do anything to protect their child. They would lie, cheat, steal, even murder in order to protect their kids. Would you? Would you murder someone to save your kid? How about lie for them? Lying seems to be a pretty innocuous choice when confronted with our current situation. A man holding a bloody axe, asking if my children are home? I'm 100% positive that I would lie to protect my children. My answer to him would be, no. Now in my gut, or in my heart of hearts, or pick your metaphor, I believe that this is the correct choice. But is it the moral choice? That question is not as simple or as intuitive as one would think. This very question, the axe-wielding psycho, was my first foray into philosophy. It was not part of a plan of any sort. As I've mentioned before, earlier in my life, I was very distanced from any semblance of a plan. Chaos was my master, and I obeyed its commands. So out of the blue, one day, my sister sent me a package of her old college textbooks. Now this is chaos in full effect, as it was one of the only times either one of us, my sister or myself, had done anything resembling something thoughtful for one another. And I'm not talking about sort of the, gosh, Jason would really love this. I mean the neutral type of thoughtful, as in, I don't know what to do with all these books, and I don't want to go through the hassle of reselling them, 
so I'll send them to Jason. Now, obviously, my biases taint my recollection of past events and have tainted me from seeing any benevolence in my sister's actions, but that's obviously a me problem. But wouldn't you know it? That's exactly what it turned out to be, some sort of benevolence. Her gift of used books included a small book on the basics of morality. I picked it up and started reading. It began with the axe murderer. Then it asked the question, is lying the moral, ethical choice in this circumstance? Now, according to a guy named Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, all forms of deceit are inherently immoral and unethical because they fail to pass the test of reason when you ask the simple question, what if everyone behaved that way? In the case of the axe murderer, when he asks if your kids are home and you lie and say no, you have acted immorally. For if lying was moral, in this instance, it would need to be moral in every other instance of lying. Clearly, that is not the case. Now, it may feel like we live in a world that is constantly lying to us, but the idea of truth is still our gold standard for what we consider moral. It is only in these extreme instances like chopping up little kids where it begins to rebel against what most feel when confronting this type of specific situation. Kant's morality is based on what he called a moral imperative or a universal imperative. In any choice, it is possible to ask the question, would it be moral if everyone did it? Then the faculty of reason is applied to give you the answer. For Kant, reason, with a capital R, was the final authority. It transcended mortal thought and existed outside of the body, sort of like math, a universal implement to determine moral imperatives. Now, if you've been listening to the previous episodes of this podcast, you can probably guess how I feel about this theory. For me, it is dead in the water as it hangs all of its hats on reason as an infallible tool of authority. Now, we know now, through scientific research, that is not how reason works. Sorry, Kant. Also, what is the real difference between an omniscient, perfect entity like reason and God? They seem to share the same attributes. The buck stops with them. All adjudication of morality is under their purview. They are equally disembodied versions of perfection that we as flesh and blood mortals only get glimpses of. So there must be other types of morality. Well, it wouldn't be a choose-your-own-adventure without choice. So let's take a look at one that offers a little bit more flexibility. Utilitarianism. Now this concept of morality was developed by two main dudes, both British, I believe, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. Now, they did this independently of each other. Now, it is basically what it sounds like. Utility drives morality. In the case of the axe murderer, lying to him would be of the greatest utility, so therefore it would be moral to do so. This is due to a key part of the concept of utility, happiness. Utilitarianism is based on achieving happiness as a society, all working together to improve each other's happiness as a whole. In the never-ending battle of moral concepts, the moral authorities, like religion and Kantian morality, typically paint the utilitarians as soft, weak, and hedonistic, searching only for happiness over the sake of everything else. They didn't have to go very far afield to level their criticism 
as it sounds very much like the charges they levied against Epicurus and his atomic theory of existence. Both utilitarianism and Epicurism are direct affronts to the typical authority types of this world. There is a solid reason for this. Specifically, utilitarianism was conceived as a nurturing type of morality. It still relies on rational thought, stuff like reasons, but it doesn't put all its chips in the reason basket, demanding that all things be judged through the capital A authority of capital R reason. In a nurturing style of morality, it is equally important that each member of society works towards the collective good or happiness of a given situation. In many ways, the theory posits a version of a family, where each member looks out for the other members of the family. When you consider it that way, as a family, then it is apparent that there is no overriding desire to maximize just one person's happiness, nor is it typical in a nurturing family environment for there to be an iron-fisted disciplinarian leading the family, since it is hard to nurture when you are busy not sparing the rod. Sacrifice and misery are both acceptable in a utilitarian environment. They both can be viewed as moral if they are contributing to the overall happiness of those who are involved. Working to realize the maximum happiness possible in a given situation, which can mean choosing to do something that is personally harmful to you, if it means it benefits the greater good, would be considered a moral choice. Unlike Christian ethics or Kant's moral imperatives, utilitarianism is based not on an authority such as God or reason, but on empathy, benevolence, and goodwill. How do you like that version of morality? Too wishy-washy for you? Where does the buck stop in utilitarianism? Is it all about happiness? Whose happiness? It is important to keep in mind that Christian, Kantian, and utilitarian morality is presented as a universal morality that covers all of humanity. So they are not just competing theories, they are competing in the real world every day. Most of us use a form of utilitarianism just about every day. We just don't call it that. We see in some way that we are all in this together, like a family. And like a family, it is good to nurture our family members. For instance, if you are wearing a mask by choice when you shop for groceries, then you are displaying the ethos of the utilitarian morality a sacrifice to make the world a better place. But when it comes to morality, that's not all. There's more. There's another form of morality started by Aristotle, and his ethics all surround achieving what he called arete. It's a Greek word, translated as human excellence. So for him, morality is all about growing into your moral self. For Aristotle, this meant to be nurtured intellectually to allow you to learn how to be a moral person. This process of learning he called virtue, the seeking of human excellence. It is all about forming the correct habits to behave in a balanced, temperate manner that is moral. Aristotle uses both reason as an authority in the ability to learn and the idea of nurturance of that learning to produce ethics of personal improvement, what is called sort of a teleological process, meaning there is an end to seek. The end with Aristotle is that elusive human excellence he called arete. When it comes to axe murderers and lying, Aristotle would probably need to determine the ethics of the situation 
by how far along the path of virtue you were on. If you were a barbarian, then your choice to lie would be moral. If you were a philosopher trained at Aristotle's Lyceum, then you would know better and your decision to lie would be immorality incarnate. On the other hand, if you look a little bit more outside the box, you have moralities like existentialist and relativistic moralities. The first one, existentialism, is based on the idea that there is no self, no general rules or universal morality, just your choice. What you choose to do defines the morality. For instance, if you are reading a book and a character stays behind in a battle zone, giving their life so that others may escape, you, the reader, may judge this act as moral, and that is the reason for its morality. On its own, to an existentialist, the act is neither moral or immoral. It becomes so only when someone decides to determine if the act is moral. Sort of like a tree falling in the forest argument, right? On the other hand, moral relativism is sort of that when in Rome type of morality. It can also be the morality of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, or the morality of the Mongols and they're creating a desert and calling it peace, or the morality of Auschwitz. Well, you get the picture. Relative really does mean relative. There is no universal morality or authority. There can be an authority that has dominion over a relative part of a population, but that doesn't mean that the town across the river follows the same moral beliefs. Both of them accept the authoritarian and nurturing style of morality. Of course, depending on the situation, they could both deny those styles as well. Ah, the fickleness of relativity. In both cases, lying to the axe murderer could be considered moral in the correct context. So there we have it, your list of common moral theories. They are moral authority in the form of Judeo-Christian ethics, moral imperatives in the form of Kantian universal imperatives, moral utility in the form of utilitarianism, moral virtue, thanks to Aristotle, moral existentialism, and moral relativism. The big six. Now, there are other moral concepts out there, but this is a pretty comprehensive list of the most popular. Now, there are some trends that you can see just by making this list. First, there appears to be two main precepts that each morality follows, one involving authority and the other nurturance. Authority and imperatives are the driving force behind Judeo-Christian and other religious moralities in the form of a supernatural deity. For Kant, God is replaced by capital R reason that exists as a supernatural faculty he called universal reason, from which we as humans will discover or more aptly realize moral imperatives. This ability, while it is possessed by all people in theory, is not very often used correctly, or sometimes it is just ignored altogether, and for Kant, that is a no-no. Universal reason requires absolute obedience. It is the final judge and arbiter. Strength is a key factor for both Kantian and Judeo-Christian ethics. Having the strength to overcome the temptations and pitfalls that lie in wait for all humans. It is moral strength that is important to authoritative systems. For them, it is the essential condition for us to do what capital R reason or capital G God morally commands. Authoritative systems of morality are seldom completely authoritative, however. In the case of Christianity, there is a large amount of a more nutrient strain of morality 
thanks to the New Testament. There is no getting around their nurturing behavior of Jesus. His willingness to sacrifice for the betterment of others is the embodiment of nurturance. It was all about love for Jesus, and living a moral life meant developing empathy and utilizing acts of love as the binding force of good for a community. It is interesting to note that while being worshipped both as the Son of God and in part God himself, Jesus was never, in the material world, a leader of anyone. He was as far away from an authority on anything as you could be. Now, he may have professed authority on stuff, but save for a very small minority of outcasts and societal dregs, he was most certainly not seen as an authority by the leadership of the day. Was he a threat? Sure. I mean, that is why he was put to death. What Christians want to claim as the ultimate sacrifice, to be seen singularly Christ-like, was his willingness to die for his beliefs. What made Jesus a threat was his morality based on nurturance. But as we should all know by now, he was preceded by 400 years by our happy, ugly, alpha human, Socrates. There are many links between Socrates and Jesus. For the sake of this discussion, the connection between the two being put to death for their threat to society's perceived natural order by proposing eerily similar bedrock statements on morality is enough. We'll get to more connections later. So when it comes to nurturing moralities, much as in the case with authoritative varieties, you can expect component elements to be reason and authority-based as well. Authority in the form of reason or some faculty, like ego or empathy, is present in moral theories such as utilitarianism and Aristotle's virtue ethics. But they are not steering the ship. They are not in charge, but instead are part of a more inclusive process that includes sympathy, benevolence, and assistance to others. Both of these theories, utilitarianism and virtue, also use a goal-oriented metaphor, meaning that there is something that humanity is constantly striving for in the form of a general sense of happiness for the collective, for the utilitarian, and in a state of growing wisdom for Aristotle and his virtue ethics. As authors and cognitive scientists Lakoff and Johnson put it, for Aristotle, quote, morality is about growth, about the person developing his or her capacities and exercising them to the fullest extent in order to realize what is best in them, unquote. Now, moral relativism and existentialism are trickier to define along similar lines as we use the authority-nurturance premise. It is because of the major difference between these two moralities and all the others. This difference is that when it comes to relativism and existentialism, there is no universality of morality. Only the morality that you happen to find yourself in or choose to use, respectively. There is a universal morality in the sense that there is some set of societal rules that everyone follows, but it is relative to where you are currently located in moral relativism, and morality only exists because you make choices during your duration in reality, according to the moral existentialist. Now, for me, they're both relative. One to place and time, and the other one to choice but I'm probably too simple to get the nuances. In either case, the relativity does not remove the fact that authority or nurturance will be involved regardless. It just will be apt to change as we move forward through space and time. So which one best represents how you define morality? How about our man Socrates? 
What would he have to say to the axe murderer? There is nothing concrete like a definitive answer from him. Shocking. The man who never wrote anything down and is famous for asking questions rarely supplies any answers. It is up to us to determine the answer. Socrates would have it no other way. The good news is there's not a ton to have to sift through to get some insight into the morality of Socrates. That is not only due to the aforementioned lack of content on the man and his thoughts, but also because Socrates' moral system was simple by design. Socrates' morality consists of five basic principles that build off each other. Number one, we should never do injustice. Number two, we should never do injustice in return for an injustice. Number three, we should never do evil to a human being. Number four, we should never return evil for evil. And number five, doing any evil to a human being is the same as doing injustice to that person. In fact, you could boil it down into two foundational axioms. We should never do injustice. We should never do injustice in return for injustice. Now that second sentence is a jaw-dropper, historically speaking. Socrates used reason and logic to establish a morality that directly flies in the face of the ancient moral code of revenge. Now we covered this quite a bit in part one of the series. Greek culture defined morality as in part an imperative to harm your enemy to the fullest extent allowed by your rules or your laws or your society. Now, thanks to Gregory Vlastos's biography of Socrates, we have some great examples of the idea of revenge and how it fits into the moral code of the Athenians in particular. Our boy Solon, creator of those awesome fair play laws that began the long march towards Athenian democracy, had this to say about it. Quote, In aspiring to be in good repute with all men, I pray that I be sweet to friends and bitter to enemies. Unquote. Now, if you were thinking that only men were thirsty for revenge, check out Medea. Now, albeit this is from a play written by a guy, but she vows that she will be, quote, harsh to foes, gracious to friends, for such are they whose life is most glorious, unquote. Now, when arguing with Socrates himself, Mino, in the dialogue named after him, defines masculine excellence this way, quote, Socrates, if you want to know what manly virtue is, it is this, to be able to conduct the city's affairs, doing good to friends and evil to enemies, while taking care to not harm oneself, unquote. Then a buddy chimes in, a guy named Isocrates, and says, quote, Consider it disgraceful to be outdone by enemies in inflicting harm, as by friends in conferring benefits, unquote. Now that last quote is the one that gets me. Consider it to be disgraceful to be outdone by enemies in inflicting harm is some straight-up Game of Thrones shit. It is not just a matter of repayment, reciprocity, and restitution. If it were, then simply paying one's moral debt would be good enough. But as you can tell from Isocrates' comments above, it is about more than a financial transaction. It is about revenge. Now, if we hearken back to the list of moral theories, there is a whole lot of evidence that what Socrates was born into was a strict authoritative morality, but a much different one than we conceptualize moral authority now. 
instead of an omniscient supernatural being or universal reason or utility or virtue, revenge was the moral imperative. The calculus was simple. You hurt me, I will hurt you worse. That's just basic logic that developed from the basic everyday interactions amongst prehistoric humanity. Now, in their book, Philosophy in the Flesh, philosophers and cognitive scientists Lakoff and Johnson do a great job of breaking down the logical and real-world implications with the traditional revenged-tinged morality. They state that a system, typically understood metaphorically as a financial one, of retribution and revenge is the type of morality you would likely see in the time of the Trojan War, around 1100 BC. As time passed, people started to examine this morality of retribution and revenge and discovered an inherent contradiction that would have real-world consequences. Now, it's very common for us humans to speak about morality in a financial way. Gains and losses, wealth and poverty. Sticking with the financial metaphors, morality can be viewed transactionally. When it comes to retribution and revenge, the system is a basic one and is understood commonly in these foundational concepts that are, of course, transactional. Number one, moral action is giving something of positive value. Moral action is giving something of positive value. Immoral action is giving something of negative value. So that's simple addition and subtraction. Two wrongs don't make a right. I do something good for you, I am your friend. I do something bad for you, I am your enemy. And the second concept, there is a moral imperative to pay one's moral debts. The failure to pay one's moral debts is immoral. And you can remove the term moral from this statement, and it is equally foundational in the area of finances, right? There is an imperative to pay one's debts. The failure to pay one's debts is immoral. So it works for both morality and finances. Now consider, I pluck your eye out. Now I've given you some red in your ledger, something of negative value. You now owe me some harm. But that is not all. In a well-being is wealth sort of way, I have not only done you harm, but I've also taken something of positive value away from you, which is your well-being. You don't feel as safe now. So another way this type of morality manifests itself is in the form of honor. Honor is a manifestation of that second concept. We just said it was sort of well-being was taken away. Well, sometimes people feel that their honor is taken away. In a culture bound by honor, the punishments for offenses are often much harsher than the crime itself. This is due to the twofold morality of retribution and revenge in the form of honor. Now, you can also examine this type of morality in an entirely different manner in the classic sci-fi story of Ender's Game. There are multiple times in the story where Ender, when faced with certain violence, will attack aggressively. And once he has gained the upper hand in each altercation, he continues to inflict maximum damage, often resulting in the death of his adversary. Ender continually justifies his actions due to the logic due to the logic that if he didn't finish the argument then, even at the risk of resorting to excessive violence, then his adversary would just return in greater strength. I guess Ender was more than just a catchy nickname. In any case, what the story and logic of Ender's Game shows us is a sort of extreme strike-first version of the retribution and revenge morality. Eliminate the risk of revenge 
by ending the conflict before it can reach that level, both for you by winning the fight so you don't need to seek revenge, and for your opponent who will at least think twice before picking a fight with you, or be dead. Ender is taking each confrontation to its logical conclusion during the very first altercation. In each of these examples, the second concept of repaying one's moral debts is represented as a form of revenge, or at least proactive revenge. What Ender's Game points out is that revenge is not really about wealth or honor, but it's about survival. For most of our existence, if you didn't take care of business with someone, it could turn deadly really fast. While not solely used for this purpose, revenge has a strong tie to everyday survival. Its roots run deep. But all of this is secondary because I have just plucked out one of your eyes. And I use the old three-fingered Muhammad technique too. So what do you do now? You think about it and you choose to pluck out one of my eyes. Now you have done something that has two implications when it concerns the basic concepts of our retribution and revenge morality. By plucking out my eye, you have given me something of a negative value in return. Therefore, you have violated our first moral concept. Remember, moral action is giving someone a positive value. Immoral action is giving something of negative value. You just plucked out one of my eyes. Therefore, you have given me something of negative value. Two wrongs don't make a right. But if you look at the second tenet, it appears by gouging my eyeball from my skull was just what the doctor ordered. Remember, there is a moral imperative to pay one's moral debts. The failure to pay one's moral debts is immoral. Then by choosing to harm me, you are acting morally as far as that second tenet is concerned. You are paying your moral debt, reclaiming your honor, so what happens if you choose to do the opposite and not pluck out my eye? Now, if you flip around the scenario and you choose to do nothing, that means that you will fulfill the moral requirements of the first concept by doing no harm, giving me nothing of negative value, but you will fail to follow the second part by refusing to follow through with the moral concept to pay one's moral debts. Now, this sort of Gordian knot caused a lot of problems for humanity. This illogical basis for the basic rules of life made living one's life more of a challenge than it needed to be. Areas of humanity began to face the logic of their morality, and the early religions, such as Hinduism and Judaism, decided to do something about it. The Jews in particular decided that left unchecked, this type of morality was a disaster. So they gave us one of the great examples of what Gregory Vlastos calls the Lex Telonius. We know it by where it comes up in the Bible, from Exodus 21, 24 through 25. Quote, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, unquote. And with that, revenge now had its limits. Even if you were so hell-bent on revenge once I took out your eye that you wanted to pluck out both of my eyes, you are now told that was crossing the line. Control yourself for God's sakes and settle for just one. So the Lex Telonius, or Law of Retaliation, set the record straight on revenge. You could certainly do it, but only commensurate to what has been done to you. However, we can tell from those quotes earlier, some of them with Socrates literally in them, that even with the Law of Retaliation, the ancients never lost their thirst for revenge. 
which makes sense because, as I mentioned earlier, it dates back long before they even considered themselves conscious or humans. And then along comes Socrates. For Socrates, morality is justice, a virtue that fits squarely into the good column. Justice is attained, as is anything good, through wisdom. On the other hand, injustice, being the opposite of justice, means that it is evil. Evil is done through ignorance, and for Socrates, through ignorance alone. That belief is at the core of Socrates' morality. He truly believed that it was only ignorance that caused evil. In some manner, he is saying something akin to original sin. Everyone is born ignorant, and it is the job of the individual to attain wisdom throughout one's life in order to commit to and actually commit acts of justice and goodness. That is why he can come up with such simple statements to sum up his rules of morality. We should never do injustice. We should never do injustice in return for an injustice. You can replace a couple of terms in Socrates' basic ideology, and you get, we should always strive to not be ignorant. We should never be ignorant in return for ignorance. For Socrates, it is as simple as that. If you are ignorant to the ways of something, shut up and learn about it before opening your mouth. Ask questions. Admit your ignorance. If someone is drenching you in their ignorance, that is no excuse for you acting in a similar manner. Ever. In one fell swoop, Socrates supplanted the Lex Talonius with a moral code that rings true to our modern ears. It is no coincidence, for me at least, that four centuries later, another simple man, walking the streets with the aim of improving the lives of each and every one he met, adopted an axiom of, turn the other cheek. We should never do injustice in return for an injustice. I'm sure Jesus would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, just for the heck of it, check it out from the source. First, the New Testament, Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48, quote, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, unquote. Now from the Platonic dialogue, Crito, Socrates says, quote, We should never do injustice, therefore we should never return an injustice. We should never do evil, therefore we should never return evil for evil. To do evil to a human being is no different from acting unjustly to him. Unquote. Remember all that conflicting logic we had with retribution and revenge? Yeah, that's all gone, thanks to Socrates. Now, is it a challenging code to live by? Absolutely. Is it logical? Most certainly. Does it work? Now, if Socrates' life, and particularly the way he died, happy and content, even with the finality and uncertainty of death looming, is taken as an example, then most certainly the answer is yes. The Socrates system works when you live like Socrates. When you choose to achieve what he calls virtue, which in his mind is the only way to attain true happiness. It all starts with the simple idea of never knowingly doing an injustice a simple but difficult mantra to follow, and at the time, so revolutionary, I have given it the title of one of the true original ideas that humanity has ever produced. It is moral logic that had never existed before. In fact, it is safe to say that it is something called morality, a creation of the man named Socrates, who came up with it on his own. 
which is an incredibly rare feat. How rare? How original of an idea was this for Socrates to have? I'll let Socratic scholar Gregory Vlastos explain how rare of an idea this was, and in fact might be one of those rarities in history, an original thought. He says, quote, Innovations in history don't come out of the blue. Somewhere or other, in earlier or contemporary Greek literature, we might expect anticipations of Socrates' rejection of the talio, or at least approximations of it, unquote. But he couldn't. He goes on to say, talking about Aristotle, who lived after Socrates had died, quote, Great moralist that he was, Aristotle had not gotten it through his head that if someone had done a nasty thing to me, this does not give me the slightest moral justification for doing the same nasty thing or any nasty thing to him. So far as we know, the first Greek to grasp in full generality this simple and absolutely fundamental moral truth is Socrates. Unquote. Not to be too anticlimactic, but Socrates is credited with being the first moral philosopher. That's a big deal. It is definitely a notch in the pro column for my claim that Socrates is the alpha human. Being first in an area of philosophy that counts some of the most important names in philosophy in its ranks, Jesus, Aristotle, Kant, Mill, Bentham, Hume, and so many more, all of them had to contend with Socrates because his concepts formed the very foundation of morality for the Western world. Now, it is important to note that the stuff we are talking about concerning Socrates himself vastly predates all of the previously mentioned moral theories. I mean, the closest one we get really is Aristotle, which happened after him, was really more of a continuation of Socrates's. And then we got to wait four centuries until Jesus comes around and then wait another 1400 years before Kant. We are at the beginning of the process that eventually will be labeled relativism, utilitarianism, existentialism. And at this point, it is just a primordial pool of basic elements. So where did this bolt out of the blue come from? Where did Socrates find the inspiration to create his highly original and groundbreakingly logical new morality? Now, in the typical Socratic manner, I will answer that question with a question of my own. How were you raised as a child? Why this question? How will it determine the source of this epoch-making insight? Because morality, according to George Lakoff, cognitive scientist and author of Philosophy in the Flesh, morality can find its roots in the family, particularly in the method of how you were raised. I have already been presenting facets of his argument throughout this episode. I have been hammering home the authoritative versus nurturant style of morality. According to the book Philosophy in the Flesh, the argument is made that these two major types of foundational moral concepts are first developed in the family unit. How your particular family was raised leads directly to the way you moralize the world. Well, that sounds like a no-duh type of statement, so let me put it another way. This theory of family morality extends beyond just everyday interactions of you as an individual. It is the theory that all morality is based on one of two things. Number one, do you live in a society that values a strict father model of the family? Or number two, do you live in a society that values a nurturant parent model of the family? That's it. All of humanity, we have worked off moral and ethical rules that all come from the singular wellspring of these two models of parenting. 
Did you grow up in a nature, now nature in this argument is standing in for the strict father, or a nurture type of situation? There are, of course, many ways that a person can be raised. The spectrum can run from the untethered horror show that is orphanhood to the very lap of luxury and security that a large part of our Western world represents. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, then you are probably lived in a family and that familial unit had a high probability of using one of two parenting styles. Now, to help you out, I think it is useful to let Lakoff and his co-writer Johnson give a little bit more depth into what constitutes these two types of family models. Now, just right off the bat, the names of these two models should tell you something. Strict father family or nurturant parent family. Anyway, from the book Philosophy in the Flesh, here is Lakoff and Johnson's breakdown of their two family models. So starting with the strict father model. Quote, We live in a world full of dangers, pitfalls, and conflict. To survive in such a world, we need to be strong and we need to have our values firmly in place. The strict father, almost always the father, model emerges in response to this perception of life as hard and dangerous. It is a model of family geared toward developing strong, morally upright children who are capable of facing the world's threats and evils. The family is a traditional nuclear one, with the father having primary responsibility for supporting and protecting the family. The father has the authority to determine the policy that will govern the family. Because of his moral authority, his commands are to be obeyed. He teaches his children right from wrong by setting strict rules for their behavior and by setting a moral example in his own life. He enforces these moral rules by reward and punishment. The father also gains his children's cooperation by showing love and appreciating them when they obey the rules. But children must not be coddled, lest they become spoiled. A spoiled child lacks the appropriate moral values and lacks the moral strength and discipline necessary for living independently in meeting life's challenges. The mother has day-to-day responsibility for the care of the household, raising the children and upholding the father's authority. Children must obey their parents because of their parents' moral authority. Through their obedience, they learn discipline and self-reliance that is necessary to meet life's challenges. This self-discipline develops in them a strong moral character. Love and nurturance are a vital part of family life, but they should never outweigh parental authority, which in itself is a form of love and nurturance tough love. As children mature, the virtues of respect for moral authority, self-reliance, and self-discipline allow them to incorporate their father's moral values. In this way, they incorporate their father's moral authority. They become self-governing and self-legislating. In certain versions, the children are then off on their own, and it's inappropriate for the father to meddle in their lives. Unquote. So that's the strict father-parent model. So now we'll take a look at the nurturing parent family model. Quote, Now a contrasting moral system built around the second idealized model of the family, the nurturant parent model. The primal experience behind this model is that of being cared for and cared about, having one's desires for loving interaction met, living as happily as possible, deriving meaning from mutual interaction and care. Children develop best in and through their positive relationships to others through their contribution to their community, and through the ways in which they realize their potential and find joy in life. Children become responsible, self-disciplined, and self-reliant through being cared for and respected and through caring for others. 
Support and protection are part of nurturance, and they require strength and courage on the parts of parents. Ideally, as children mature, they learn obedience out of their love and respect for their parents, not out of fear of punishment. Open, two-way, mutually respectful communication is crucial. If parents' authority is to be legitimate, they must tell children why their decisions serve the cause of protection and nurturance. They must allow their children to ask questions and why parents do what they do, and all family members should participate in family decisions. Responsible parents, of course, must make the ultimate decision, and that must be clear. Protection is a form of caring, and protection from external dangers takes up a significant part of the nurturant parent's attention. The world is filled with evils that can harm a child, and that is the nurturant parent's duty to ward them off. The principal goal of nurturance is for children to be fulfilled and happy in their lives and to become nurturant themselves. This involves learning self-nurturance as a necessary condition for caring for others. A fulfilling life is assumed to be, in significant part, a nurtured life, one committed to family and community responsibility. What children need to learn is empathy for others, the capacity for nurturance, cooperation, and the maintenance of social ties which cannot be done without strength, respect, self-discipline, and self-reliance that comes from being cared for and caring. Unquote. Does that help any? Now, it is very common for most of us to grow up in a mashup of these two styles. However, it is rare that both styles share supremacy. In either case, strict father or nurturant parent, there is always, or almost always, a dominant model in a family. Now, if we go back and take a quick look at our six modern moral theories, we can clearly see that which family each one grew up with. Judeo-Christian ethics, strict father. Rational ethics of Kant, strict father. Utilitarianism, nurturant parent. Virtue ethics, nurturant parent. Existential ethics and moral relativity, either strict father or nurturant parent. Okay, so where does that leave us with Socrates? Now, he lived long before any of these definitions were coined, and we know now that he started this whole mess. So if Socrates was so great, why was he unable to give us a morality system that is better than what, we are, than what we currently have cooked up? Well, I'm here to say that he did, and he has. It has just fallen through the cracks of time and history. What Socrates has to say about morality can be summed up in those two sentences. We should never do injustice we should never do injustice in return for an injustice. So how did he get there? What were the conditions that led him down the road less traveled or more aptly forge a whole new road for others to choose? According to Lakoff and Johnson, we should be able to make some sense out of all of it by looking at how Socrates was raised. If we can determine the dominant family model, we might be able to ascertain some more insight into the morality of Socrates. So let's take a look. Socrates had the benefit of a two-parent household. He also had the advantage of a stay-at-home parent. By all accounts, Socrates, as an only child, had a very loving, nurturing upbringing. His father, a stonecutter by trade, and his mother, who was purported to be a midwife, were firmly middle class by the standards of the day and enjoyed all of that the amazing city of ancient Athens had to offer. Taking advantage of the unique combination of optimism, security, affluence, education, and more, that classical Athens offered meant that Socrates got the best education, the best opportunities, the best peer group, just the best situation one could find oneself in in the entire world. Not too dissimilar 
from us here in modern-day America. It is important to note that Socrates also credits the city itself with helping him become the man that he became. Socrates had a deep attachment to his city, leaving its boundaries only twice in his entire 70-year life, one time to attend Olympic-style games as a teenager in order to meet the philosopher Zeno. The other time was to fight in Athens' army at the age of 40. Upon his conviction and sentencing to death, Socrates once again defended his beloved city in its desire to kill him. If he were to take the advice of his friends and bust it out of jail and fled to another city-state, what would that say of Socrates after he enjoyed decades under the care and nurture of Athens? No, Socrates would not flee. He loved and respected the place that had fed him, educated him, kept him safe, and gave him purpose. He would sooner die than do the city of Athens an injustice. And that, of course, is just what he did. Ancient Athens was a combustive mix of old and new, myths and epic poems mingling with the interest rates and atomic theory of the day. It was once a very conservative and very liberal place. This dichotomy probably helped create such a vibrant culture. It also, thanks to their easygoing but argumentative nature, allowed for Athens to make great advances very quickly. This speed of innovation only led to exacerbate the situation between the conservative and liberal factions of the city. Now, we know in many ways that Socrates was a very conservative person. He did not want to rock the boat. He loved his city and believed in the literal goodness of Athens and its traditions. He rarely, if ever, questions the average person's belief system. He always questions their conceptions of the moralities behind whatever ontology or system of belief one chooses to use. But as much as a gadfly as he was, he felt it was not his place to judge, merely to help with day-to-day life. This point is driven home as I ponder the life of Socrates. There have been times in his life that he appears to be making a choice that would be altogether immoral to someone raised in a nurturant parent family. For example, when Socrates served in the army, he participated in a siege of a fellow city-state named Potidaea. It was like most sieges, long, punishing, and horrifying. Athens strangled the city of Potidaea to such an extent that they resorted to cannibalism before finally capitulating. Socrates was part of the process that created this situation. He was well aware that people were suffering unbelievably but always held his military service in high regard. This has always been an issue for me. I've had a hard time rationalizing someone as grounded in reality as Socrates, not seeing the siege as something horrific and immoral. But he doesn't, as far as I can tell. And I've been puzzling over this point explicitly because at some point I wanted to kind of juxtapose his military service and its moral implications against some of the other choices he's made to take moral stands in his life. Now, for instance, he turned out an order to join an assassination squad, or he stood alone, one against 500, as a juror in a trial for the lives of the generals who lost many ships in battle. In both of these cases, I mistakenly saw them as different in some way as compared to his time in the army. But taken as a whole, and bringing in his reasons and justification for allowing the state to put him to death, there is a clear, deep vein of conservatism that runs through all that Socrates does. Now, why do I see this? Because in every instance made available to us, Socrates takes the position of what is legal and right in accordance with Athenian law. He never addresses his choice to participate in the horrors of Potidaea as anything other than his legal obligation to respond to the city when asked to do so. It was his legal and therefore his moral duty to do so. 
Now, when it came to being ordered to participate in extrajudicial killings, which were clearly against the law, Socrates said no. When 499 fellow Athenians voted to condemn the eight generals, Socrates stood his ground, not due to his desire to save the lives of the generals. No, his reason for standing his ground was that he saw the trial as illegal due to a technicality. Athenian law clearly stated that all men had the right to their own trial, and they were not supposed to be tried as a group. For that reason, and that reason only, Socrates put his reputation and life on the line. From Potidaea through to his death, Socrates always told the line when it came to Athens and the laws that govern his city-state. For Socrates, it was the only way to ensure a functioning society. The rule of law was for him the final mortal moral authority. Now, Socrates' form of conservatism also manifests itself in the manner in which he practices his philosophy. He takes no money for his teaching. He seeks and finds rarefied skill and wisdom in the most unheralded members of society. While he became famous for taking down the big fish in his public argument sessions, he spent most of the time conversing with the average man on the street. He held the craftsman and laborer in the highest esteem. Socrates does not hold any idea of his own supremacy or authority over anything. Now, this is a brand of conservatism that we rarely see in our society, which has been morphed into some sort of money cult for the most part. The type of folk conservatism that Socrates plied was a more traditional one that viewed life as simple, straightforward, and worth working hard for. This meant for Socrates beating the pavement and mingling with the unwashed masses. Of course, he was the standard bearer for unwashed. Now, finding wisdom in the simple craftsmanship of the Athenian worker was a great pride for Socrates. So this unique brand of conservatism that Socrates demonstrates, Paul Johnson calls conservative radicalism, as opposed to being a radical conservative. The difference in being a conservative radical means that Socrates pays due respect to traditions of his life and his city. In fact, we know that Socrates is far from neutral when it comes to supporting those traditions. See his military service or his manner of death as prime examples. What makes him a radical is his grounded and egalitarian nature. I mean, in many ways, Socrates, by way of his own logic, is very liberal for his time. His choice of wife, Xanthippe, is something that can serve as a good example. Keeping the old adage that well-behaved women rarely make history, Xanthippe has come to us through the ages alongside her husband. Throughout that time, until very recently, she has been portrayed in a negative light. It is her very nature as a harpy and a shrew that has kept her name afloat through the annals of history. Now, it is my guess that Socrates married an independent woman who spoke her mind. One does not earn the monikers Xanthippe has had heaped on her for being acquiescent and passive. If one were to just look at the logic of it, I mean, can we imagine that someone like Socrates would marry a wallflower, spending all his home time with a vacuous mind that lacked the vitality so much treasured by Socrates? Remember, he did not marry till at least his 50th year. It was a buyer's market for him at that point. He was a war hero, a local celebrity that called many of the city's most powerful and popular his friends. I mean, dare I say that Socrates was a catch? No, probably not. He was almost penniless, had no real job, and walked the streets barefoot, his rag and bone cloak flapping in the breeze. 
Nonetheless, I cannot see him ending up with anyone but someone who would be perceived by his contemporaries and by most of history as difficult. Socrates never stopped being Socrates. He didn't kick back in his easy chair, sloughing off a day at the office and ridding himself of the stress of the day. Every minute of every day was work and pleasure for Socrates. So his home life would need to conform to his needs, which were different from most. No creature comforts, no parties, no nonsense. But I bet there were stimulating conversations. I bet Socrates and Xanthippe had some real healthy arguments behind closed doors. I can't imagine it any other way. Also, Socrates, for the most part, inherently believed that men were equal. All men had the ability to achieve a happy, virtuous life. This belief makes him a radical in the sense that it is not the agreed-upon opinion of most people that that is the case. Sure, most of us talk a good game. It's in the marketing materials for our good old U.S. of A., but the twisted, stunted, and overall shoddy version of equality that America has been crowing about since before we were America is a far cry from the equality that Socrates thought. To most, the term equality is just that, a term, a word. It is dead, used only for communication purposes. This is in opposition to the idea that equality is a concept that is alive. By alive, I mean that it is changing all the time and needs our constant attention to assure that it is applied to as many people as wished to be called equal. By way of comparison to Socrates and his conservative radicalism, we need not look any further than his most famous acolyte, his chronicler, Plato. Paul Johnson describes Plato as a radical conservative. The conservative part of the term is similar to how it is defined for Socrates. Plato had reverence to and adherence to traditional values and customs. Where the radical was placed matters, for in Plato's case, it means entirely the opposite of what it means to describe Socrates. A radical conservative like Plato believes that all wisdom and authority is derived by a small, select group of individuals who know best. Coincidentally, he believes that that is the philosopher, and the philosopher alone, who possesses the necessary traits to lead. Everyone else is just something not as worthy, not as equal. Plato goes on to create caste-like systems that place each type of human into a corresponding category in his society, expelling altogether the sophists and the poets. They are only not equal. They are actually less than human. Contrast that with Socrates. I mean, Socrates was a populist, Plato an elitist. Now, if you were wondering, Plato grew up in a privileged and wealthy aristocratic family, but I bet you could have guessed that at this point. So this unique form of conservative radicalism displayed by Socrates comes about due to three major factors as I see it. Socrates is at once both reverential to the past generations who have come before him, surely a belief imbued upon him from his father. Now we can surmise that Socrates' dad, Sophroniscus, adhered closely to a conservative mindset from the story of how Socrates was enrolled into the citizen roles on his 18th birthday. While it was not unheard of to be the first in line, it does have something to say about how his father viewed obligations. At 18 years old, you become a citizen, so you enroll on your birthday. You make sure you're the first in line. And I would be remiss not to mention his mom's influence. Unfortunately, there is little said about her and absolutely nothing concerning her influence on her son. Ain't that just like history to completely minimize the mom in the raising of a child. It's like history was written by a bunch of self-righteous Caucasian men or something. However, 
there are some tidbits of information that you can glean. Socrates' mom, Farinidi, was said to have been a midwife. Now, this type of job would afford her something that very few wives of Athenian citizens could boast, namely mobility. Doing her job meant that Farinidi would have to leave her own home and journey to another's. Now, this must have been relished by Socrates' mother. Not only would she get the gain of just getting out of the cold, dark hovel, the Athenians called a house, but she would get to socialize with all types of people. Hmm. I wonder if that would have any later influence on her son. Now, this socialization would have an added benefit of circulating fresh information through Socrates' childhood. Stories of the actions, reasons, and complications arising from the birth of a child were sure to have influenced how Socrates saw the world, not the least reinforcing the conservative notion of the cruel and harsh nature of the world. Remember the pot babies? I mean, often it was the midwives who were responsible for leaving the exposed infants to die. So it is evident that Socrates was raised in a strict father family model. Now, if we look over the long description that was laid out for a strict father family model from Lake Alvin Johnson, Socrates' family life was a carbon copy of one. But if we take a little bit more time and look a little closer, we can find some other influence exerting itself on Socrates. Now, starting with his mom again and her job as a midwife, despite the harshness of exposing infants to die, the profession also had positive sides. It would open up new vistas of thought and imagination as the city filled with persons from every corner of the known world, most of them young and most of them eventually going to be in the family way and in need of Farinidi's assistance. His ideas, that being Socrates on human behavior, would also be formed by the model of a nurturing mother. This had to have led Socrates to new ideas and new ways of thinking. This is most assuredly due to the influence of the third parent in his life, the city of Athens. When Socrates is talking about Athens, he always uses words and metaphors that reference a nurturative, supportive atmosphere that imbues a sense of security, health, and most importantly, freedom to live one's life. At the time of his birth and throughout his formative years, Socrates would live in a place that could boast the most secure, healthy, and egalitarian lifestyle on the planet. Strict father and nurturant parent. It is interesting to note that in all the writings about Socrates that I have read, there are dozens of examples of him talking about Athens in a nurturing, respectful way. Fascinatingly, his talk of Athens is very similar to Lakoff and Johnson's nurturing parent family model. Socrates sees it the responsibility of a city to nurture its citizens into fully moral creatures. He is not down with draconian punishments, but with goodwill, respect, and logic. In that same canon of work, there is very little reference at all made by Socrates about his family, and specifically about his father. He does certainly respect and honor his family legacy, but it is clear from the output that he personally held the Athenian model, the nurturant model of morality, in higher esteem than the conservative, strict father version. Now, all this means is that the nurturative side of morality was able to stand toe-to-toe with the strict side, a true 50-50 split that I told you was very rare, that created the paradox of Socrates' life, namely his ability to participate in a cannibalistic siege, never talking out against slavery, and his misogynistic streak, are all part of his strict father morality, always thinking that the city is acting in good faith as it is the authority in such matters and therefore 
is the moral and unquestioned master of all. If Athens asks you to jump, you say how high. Now juxtaposing that with his penchant for equality and logic, his good-natured affability and strong sense of justice all must have come from the influence of his mother and mostly from the city of Athens herself, at least as far as he himself saw it. So that makes him a rarity, a balance between liberal and conservative, strict and nurturing that thanks to other optimal conditions brought forth the world-changing belief that it was immoral to harm another person, whatever the reason. He came by this by pure logical deduction. He worked out that retribution and revenge, even with the Lex Talonius, was going to leave everyone blind. So he took it upon himself to rethink morality and bring forth the modern conception of what we consider to be, or at least some of us, the basic foundation for all of morality. Do no harm, especially in retaliation for someone harming you. So that brings us back to the question that started this all. What would Socrates do with the axe murderer? Now, this has turned out to be a harder question to answer for me than I thought. Now, if we take Socrates literally, then he would not only not lie, but he wouldn't even put up a fight if the axe were to be swung at him. I mean, how else do you commit to a creed that has at its core belief that you should do no one an injustice, especially if they have done one to you? But what we've learned in episode two of part two the episode of language and irony, is that Socrates was able to make much hay with his ability to use language in other ways instead of just literally. It might mean that he sees defending his family as a form of justice, and by doing so, even though he may inflict physical damage on the axe murderer in resorting to self-defense, this course of action can be seen as justified morally as it would be seen as justice to protect his kin. But I don't know. I'm absolutely certain that Socrates would not lie. He would see no reason to. The lie would be the injustice in this case. In many ways, Socrates, being from the time that he was, probably would deal with a man standing in the doorway with a bloody axe differently than we would. It is possible to see that sort of thing happening with a much higher frequency back then. Not axe murdering of children, but of using an axe to, say, slaughter a goat for augering purposes or for dinner. This type of behavior was very common in Socrates' time. He would most likely enter into the situation with a totally different mindset than someone in the modern world. But in the end, if the man with an axe was determined by Socrates to have bad intentions, then I'm also certain that he would be able to handle himself. No matter what the man with the axe planned to do, that is what you get with Socrates. He's a badass in two worlds. The world of thought and the world of actions. It's what makes him so singular. It is what makes someone an alpha human.